All right, well, good morning again. We're glad you're here. We are continuing our series today, CBC at the Movies. And this series, if you haven't been here, is all about looking at biblical truth through the lens of current movies. And today we're going to look at the movie Eternals. Now, a long time ago, uh, I read a quote that has always stuck with me by a guy named A.W. Tozer. And he wrote a pretty famous book called The Knowledge of the Holy. And he opens up the book with these words. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This is the most important thing about us, about who we are, is how we think about God. And what he's saying is that our beliefs about God will define us. They'll define our faith, our obedience, our worship, our witness, everything about how we live comes down to this one thing. And, you know, he's obviously not talking about what we think we're supposed to think about God or what we say, what Sunday school answer we give when we're going around in small group and you, know, you just don't want to give the wrong answer and look dumb. Instead, he's talking about what we really believe in real life when no one else is looking, when no one else is asking, how do we see God? And this morning, we're going to look at a movie that challenges us to consider what we believe about God. Perhaps to wonder how those beliefs impact our faith and our lives. And maybe even to ask, how do other people's beliefs about God impact how they live, how they see the church, how they see our lives and our faiths? So again, we'll be looking at this movie, Eternals, which is one of the most recent entries into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I don't know if you guys are Marvel fans. I am. I love these movies. My kids just started watching them, so we're watching Marvel all the time. But this is actually one of the least popular Marvel movies. If you go by scores on Rotten Tomatoes or IMDb, this is very near the bottom. I think a lot of people saw it and were just like, it's fine. And I definitely don't think it's a perfect movie, but I do think it's probably one of the most interesting Marvel movies. And one of the things that struck me immediately in watching this was the way it approaches our understanding of God, of faith, obedience, and purpose. And this movie isn't really about Christianity at all, but it does make some very explicit references to Christian ideas and themes and words. So let's go ahead and jump in. We're going to watch the opening scene from the movie. Uh, this introduces us to the Eternals, this ancient species of alien beings who came to the Earth a long time ago. And, and the first part of it is, is kind of the, like an opening crawl, and you have to read the words. They're kind of small. I didn't realize that. So if you can't read it, don't worry. I'll kind of recap it later. So just, just to warn you, during first service, they're all like, oh my gosh, we can't see what it says. What does it say? So anyway, here we go. Let's watch that. Okay, I'll read it to you guys. I should have, pa where's Pastor Nick? He's got a better voice for this. In the beginning, before the six singularities and the dawn of creation came the celestials. Ereshem, the prime celestial, created the first sun and brought light into the universe. Life began and thrived. All was in balance. 
until an unnatural species of predator emerged from deep space to feed on intelligent life. They were known as deviants. The universe was plunged into chaos. To restore the natural order, Erishim sent Eternals, immortal heroes from the planet Olympia, to eliminate the deviants. Eternals had unyielding faith in Erishim until one mission, led by the prime eternal Ajax, changed everything. Shot.
So as we all read together, the Eternals are this ancient race of aliens who were created by this powerful god called Ereshem. And Ereshem creates the Eternals and sends them to Earth to fight off these monsters called the Deviants and ultimately to help the human race develop. Now one of the criticisms of this movie is that it's a little bit confusing. Uh, the timeline jumps back and forth between all these different time periods from uh, ancient Mesopotamia to Babylon to the end of the Aztec Empire and all the way forward to our present day. There's a lot going on and it's sometimes hard to keep track of where we are. But the point of all this jumping around is to show us that the Eternals have been around for a long time and they have been a big part of human history. They've helped to guide and influence our story. Their names are even nods to mythical uh, figures and ancient gods like Gilgamesh and Icarus and Athena. And in telling a story with this long perspective, the movie is subtly, or maybe not so subtly, doing something else. I think in a way this movie is attempting to retell our theological history. From the very start of the movie, the parallels between this story and the biblical story are unmistakable. Think about those opening words of the movie. The very first thing you see is these three words, in the beginning. Now, no one starts off a story without knowing what those words mean, what they reference, how they make people feel. And what's implied is that the Eternals is giving us a new version of Genesis, a new version of creation, a new version of God, his purposes, and his people. And what follows is a story of a God who creates these beings, who creates his own special people for his mission in the world. He calls on them to have faith in him, to have faith in what he's doing in his purpose. And he imbues them with power. He gives them these gifts to help them accomplish this purpose. There are parallels in the way this story develops and how they talk about their life and their mission. And ultimately, this movie is about understanding and wrestling with this purpose. And even more so, wrestling with the character and the design of the God who gave them their purpose. So anyway, as we come back to our story, the Eternals uh, have continued for thousands of years to hunt and kill these evil deviants. 
Uh, they've continued to care for the developing human society. And in the scene we're going to watch, which is thousands of years later, they've finally finished the job. They have seemingly killed the very last of the deviants. But right at the end of the battle, Athena, uh, one of the warriors played by Angelina Jolie, goes crazy. She seems to kind of lose her mind, and she attacks the other members of the team. And so the team comes together to address not just Athena's sickness, not just her issues, but also this larger question of what they're going to do now that their mission has ended. And what we see in this scene is some seeds of doubt about Ereshim about his purpose for them and the goodness of his plan. So let's watch. Athena, please, come back to us. I thought Mad Weary was a myth. There is no cure, so no one really talks about it. What happened? Athena, you attacked everyone. Wounded Cersei, Fastos, you nearly killed Makari. I don't remember. You have Mad Weary. Your mind is fracturing under the weight of your memories. And all I can do is erase him so that you can start over. I will have to inform Arishan and take you back to the ship where we have the technology to help you. What if it happens again? She could have killed you. She could have killed all of us. Please. Please, I, I want to remember. I want to remember my life. Athena, I love you. But listen to me. It's not important if you remember or not. Your spirit will remain. You will always be thin at deep inside. Trust me. Why should she trust you? You're asking her to let you erase who she is. Druid, I know you're upset. Upset? We've trusted you for 7,000 years, and look where you've gotten us. I've watched humans destroy each other. When I could stop it all in the heartbeat. Do you know what that does to someone after centuries? Could our mission have been a mistake? Are we really helping these people build a better world, huh? Much just like the soldiers down there, pawns to their leaders. Blinded by loyalty. It ends now. Let him go. You're gonna have to make me. Stop. If you want to stop me, you're going to have to kill me. 
I'll watch over Tina. Let her keep her memories. One day when she attacks you, you might have to kill her. We will take that chance. You may all go. The Deviants are gone. There is no reason for you to stay with me. Shouldn't you ask Arishan first? We're a team. We should stay together. I didn't ask you for your advice, Icarus. Do not forget your place. This is where we say goodbye. You are free to go. I want you to go out there and live a life for yourselves. Not as soldiers. Not with the purpose you were given. Find your own purpose. And one day, when we see each other again, I want you to tell me what you found. So we see that there is a rift that's beginning to form. Uh, as the Eternals go their separate ways, they face two important but related questions. And I think these questions are really at the center of what Eternals is about. And I wonder sometimes if these questions ultimately are directed at people of faith. First, can they have a purpose outside of Erishim's design? What might it look like for these people to live for themselves, to find their own purpose, rather than live for what they were created to do? And more importantly, could Erishim's plan have been a mistake? Is he worthy of their trust? Now this brings us to the main plot of the movie, which fast forwards us to the present time, to present day. If you're you know, up with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, this is after Thanos, after people are disintegrated and come back five years later. So this is a kind of a semi-normal world. And so the Eternals have now kind of assimilated into life human life for the most part. Some of them have jobs and families. But out of nowhere, the deviants suddenly return. Several of the Eternals are attacked, and Ajak, or Selma Hayek, is killed by one of the deviants. And so in light of the crisis, the group reunites. Cersei is named the new Prime Eternal, the new leader, and they try to figure out why the deviants are back. In this next scene, Cersei is finally able to come face to face with Erishim. As the Prime Eternal, she's able to talk to him and dialogue with him. And as she does so, she finally learns the full story of the Eternal's mission. And Erishim's true plan is revealed.
Cersei. Arishan. Ajax was killed by a deviant. We think it absorbed her power. And something unusual is happening to Earth. It is a side effect of the Emergence. The Emergence? It is time for you to learn the true purpose of your mission. You were sent to Earth to bring forth the Celestial Tiamat. Every billion years, new Celestials must be born. I plant Celestial Seeds into host planets across the universe. The planet Earth was chosen to host the Celestial Tiamat. In order to grow, Tiamat needs vast amounts of energy from intelligent life. The Deviants prevented this by consuming humans until the Eternals eliminated them. Now, the human population of this planet has reached the required amount. It is time for the emergence to begin. see the look on some of your face like what's going on so the eternals learn that their mission is all a lie they weren't sent to protect humanity and help humanity grow they weren't sent for the well-being of the humans who they had lived with instead they were sent to oversee the birth of this you know big giant god monster who's growing inside of the earth's core this guy Tiamat what's really jarring here is the revelation of Ereshem's true purpose, and ultimately what that says about what he's like. Ereshem really has no real concern for the people of Earth. He has a larger plan. Maybe it's a better plan. Maybe in the grand scheme of the universe, this is what's necessary. But the lives of the people of Earth, the lives of humanity, basically mean nothing to him. Now, this seems like an appropriate time to come back to our opening quote. What comes into our minds when we think about God, is the most important thing about us. 
Now, I'm not saying that you imagine a big red thing with six eyes when you think about God, but there are ways in which how the media, how books, how movies portray God can impact us, even if ever so slightly. One of the things that I've noticed about Marvel movies is that there is a very specific concept of deity, of what gods are like. Now, with a few exceptions, for the most part, gods in the Marvel universe make for really good bad guys. See, not only is the god character usually bad, but he's also bad in a very specific way. Powerful, wise, omnipotent, but ultimately selfish, uncaring, cold, devoted to his or her own purpose, his or her own glory at the expense of people, the expense of normal people. And so the God villain is a great foil to the hero because while the hero might have less power than this God, the hero has conviction, the hero has right on our side. Put simply, the hero has love. Uh, this is most explicit in the movie Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, another pretty weird movie, where the bad guy is this guy named Ego, played by Kurt Russell. And his plan is kind of similar. He wants to like, put his, his essence into planets all over the galaxy and then eventually spread himself everywhere. So basically the entire universe is just him and his son. Maybe more familiar to most is Thanos who is a godlike character who attains all of the power in the universe and he chooses to wipe out half of all life in the name of the greater good, his plan, his design. And Ereshem follows a similar pattern. Now, I don't personally believe that Marvel is behind some huge anti-God, anti-Christian conspiracy, but I do think what these movies reflect is the fact that for many people, maybe even most people, there are huge questions about who God is, about what an all-powerful, all-knowing God should and does do, questions about his justice, his fairness, his goodness, and his plan. And I think what this movie does a good job showing, and what we're going to see in these next scenes, is that you believe, if you have a God like Ereshem, if you believe in a God like him, then following him is a mess. Obedience will always require some kind of compromise. The central conflict in Eternals is actually this division between the team that we've already kind of seen the, the seeds of. And on one hand, you have this character, Icarus. And he ultimately becomes the, the villain, the antagonist of the movie. And Icarus is defined by his faith. Unyielding, unwavering faith in Ereshem's plan. He believes in the greater good, and he is a picture of devotion and trust, even if there's a cost. And in the scenes we're going to watch, this picture of faith, this picture of devotion, ultimately makes him look like a fanatic, like an extremist, like a religious zealot who chooses blind devotion over the people around him, his friends, his family, all of humanity. And on the other side, you have the team led by Cersei, 
They believe that the right thing to do is to stop Ereshem, to stop the emergence, and protect humanity. They represent this basic desire to choose love and compassion for people. But in doing so, it's clear that they are in active rebellion against their creator. They might be stopping a plan that might be better for the larger universe, and they are risking standing against his power and authority and judgment. And if you feel a little bit of a tension here, there's, there's good on both sides, there's bad on both sides, that's kind of the point. The movie invites the audience to consider if given the choice, if it comes down to it, which would you choose? Love or obedience, duty or people? So let's jump into the movie. Uh, we're going to watch two final scenes, and we're going to watch them back to back, even though they're, they don't go together in the movie. But in these scenes, we're going to see the way this choice divides the Eternals. The first scene is a flashback to a conversation between Icarus and Ajax before Ajax is killed. Uh, and this is where we see Icarus's true motives come out, where he turns into the villain. And then we'll come back to the present time where Icarus's turn against the rest of the Eternals takes place. So let's watch those uh, two clips together. How long do we have? Seven days. Good. We completed our mission. Where is she? London. She has a good life there. I'm sure she's missed you. If I'd gone back to her, I would only have told her the truth. She would have suffered, knowing this world she loves would end one day. Icarus, we have to tell them the truth. What? Why? Because together we might be able to stop the emergence. To stop the emergence? Listen. Hey, Jack, I know it's hard Listen at the to end. Listen to me, Icarus. I have followed Arjan for millions of years, and I have never doubted him. Until now. Why now? Why now? Five years ago, Thanos erased half of the population of the universe. Delayed the emergence. But the people of this planet brought everyone back with a snap of a finger. You know, after I let you all go, I traveled the world living among them. I have seen them fight and lie and kill, but I have also seen them laugh and love. I've seen them create and, and dream. This planet, and these people have changed me. The cost of Arsham's design, it's not worth it. Not this time. I trust you, Ajak. I'll follow you to the end, as I always have. Thank you. We have to bring everyone back together. Something I have to show you first.
It's just up ahead. They must have been trapped in the ice for centuries and broke free last week when the glaciers started to melt, as the Earth's core heats up for the emergence. They killed an entire company of oil workers. I tracked them here. I suspected you might have changed your mind. I can't let you betray Arishim. Why don't you just kill me yourself? When the others realize something is happening to the Earth, they'll come to you. When they find your body, they'll know the deviants are back. It'll keep them busy until the emergence. I've been loyal to you, Ajak. Kept your secret for centuries. Lied to everyone I cared about. But never have I doubted my purpose to serve the Celestials. Let you down the road. It's the only path I know. I'm close to figuring it out. Boss, what are you doing? I've let this go on long enough. He lied to us. He already knew about the emergence. No, he didn't. Ajak told me everything when we left Babylon. What? You were never going to let us stop the emergence. No. I only wanted to protect you from the deviants. If Ajak wanted you to take her place, why did she choose me? What have you done? You killed her. I had to. She loved you. Did she? She loved you. Do you think it was easy to live with the truth? To know that one day all this would end? To keep on lying to you? If we gave humanity the choice, how many of them would be willing to die so that billions more could be born? We're not giving them a choice. Is this why you're willing to kill? You are so pathetic! I'm an eternal, Fastos. I exist for Arisham. As do you. That's who you are. I wouldn't change a single thing about who I am. Born or made, but I do not exist for Erisham. I exist for my family. And you are making the same mistake Ajak did. No! Get out of here! Kingo. Do not turn against your family. Gilgamesh died because of you. You won't succeed against me. And I will kill every one of you if I have to.
going with you. Sprite. What is this? So the stage is set for the final conflict. Uh, we're not going to watch any of this battle, even though it is a pretty cool scene. But in the end, Cersei and the team defeat Icarus. They turn Tiamat into stone, and they save the day. They rescue the Earth from destruction. Now, Icarus ends up being kind of a sympathetic villain in the end. But when it's all said and done, the viewpoint of the movie is clear. When these two purposes, these two choices come in conflict, love for people, one's own internal sense of right and wrong, should always win the day over obedience and faith in some faraway deity. In an interview, the director of Eternals, Chloe Zhao, asks an interesting question. She says, I think of the moment when human civilization has shifted from deism to humanism. When many of us were starting to ask to question the existence of gods, we started to ask ourselves, are we responsible to give meaning to the cosmos now? It's a lot of responsibility. In modern society, there's a lot of anxiety. And for better or for worse, we're asking this question. Is there a bigger plan out there? Is there a higher power? Are we part of this grand design? And if so, do we have a right to break out of it? Do we have the right to break out of God's design? And what's interesting is that for Zhao and, and for many others, for many people, there's this implied idea that, of course, we should want to, that, of course, breaking out would be good. Because in her view and in many people's view, God might not even exist. If he does, his purpose and his motives are at best uncertain, and most likely his plan, his character is going to come into conflict with good human values like love and individuality. And so it would make sense to break free, to find one's own purpose, to give life its own meaning, the meaning that we define, that we get to decide. But again, it all comes down to this. What comes to mind when we think about God? Who is he? What is he like? What is his purpose? In Ephesians 2.10, the Apostle Paul writes that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. Paul tells us that we have been created for a purpose, that this purpose was given to us before the creation of the world. He's saying that we exist for God. We belong to God. We should ultimately be led and guided by this plan he has for us. And what Eternals, what Chloe Zhao, what many people miss is that living for this purpose is not a matter of blind faith. It's not just following along without thinking. It doesn't make you a robot or a zealot. Instead, this is an invitation to trust in a God who is both knowable and deeply and completely good. See, what Paul wants us to see, what A.W. Tozer wants us to see, is that the character, the purpose of God, they're not hidden from us. They're not obscured. They're not revealed only to a select few. 
They have been revealed to us. And they are rooted in a God who is absolutely perfect. Everything about who he is, not just his power, not just his holiness, but also his goodness and love. And really, this is what the gospel, this is what Jesus is all about. See, these opening chapters of Ephesians, Ephesians 1 and 2, are are laying out for us this, this mystery, this plan of God that's now been revealed to us, that's been fulfilled in Jesus. And what Paul is trying to lay out for us is the idea that Jesus reveals to us who God is. At the heart of both creation and now cross is the revelation more than anything else of God's grace to fallen, undeserving people. Let's read uh, Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10, the larger context of this verse that we just read. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but... But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And why did he do this? Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not the result of work so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so in Jesus, we see what God has been doing all along. We see what he created the world for and ultimately where he is bringing the world to, where we're all going to end up. His purpose in Jesus is to show the incomparable riches of his grace. Ephesians 1 says the same thing, that it's all about God wanting to lavish the riches of his grace on us. And really, if you go back to the beginning of the story, if you look at the real in the beginning, we see that God has been trying to tell us this all along. Very clearly, God laid his cards on the table in creating all things and creating us, and he says, this is what I'm about. He's saying, I created the world to experience my blessing and my goodness, to experience all that I am, not because I needed something, not because I wanted to get something from this world, not because I was lacking in anything, but because I am a God who is defined by an overflowing, abundant love and grace. And to overflow in that way is to share and to create and to bring all things under my goodness, to experience my goodness. And then when we messed up, when when we fell short, when we rejected that goodness and we said, God, no, thank you. I'd rather do things my own way. What did he do? He sent Jesus. Once again, not because 
he needed something for himself, not because he had some ulterior motive, but because he wanted to show the world his grace. And so not only is God perfectly knowable in, in his word and through the person of Jesus, but what's revealed is that the more we get to know him, the more we experience of him, the more we do life with him, the more we experience this profound love that he has for us and for our world. And what we see ultimately is that there can be no greater purpose for our lives. There's no better thing that we could break free from God's purpose and step into something else. There's nothing else better that we could do than be who God made us to be, which Genesis 2 tells us is to be image bearers. What an amazing idea. He created us to bear his image, his character, who he is, all of this love and goodness and power and authority and grace to bear that in the world around us so that these incomparable riches of grace could be experienced by everyone. And so what we see is that this choice that's laid before us, this idea that maybe someday we would have to choose between obedience to God and, and love for people, between uh, duty and compassion. The, the further you draw into God's character, the more you know him, the more that choice disappears. And we recognize that it's the same thing. It's always both follow God and to be obedient to him is always going to be to grow more in love. 1 John 4 tells us that God is love. And so to be like God, to know him, is to love our brother and sister, to love our neighbor. And so we don't have to be at war with ourselves. We don't ever have to be in a situation where we have to choose sides. Instead, we can have wholehearted conviction about the purpose God has for our lives. And, and as a body, we can be united around this conviction. We never have to fight or argue or, or disagree about what this church is supposed to be about because it's revealed its obedience and love. You know, whenever I watch a, a movie like this, and I think there's a lot of them out there that represent God's character a certain way, um, I always walk away feeling a little bit sad sad about the fact that there are so many people who view God this way. And again, not saying they view him as a big red monster with six eyes, but, but as this flawed deity who couldn't possibly be good, who couldn't possibly be loving, who must be unjust or unfair or mean-spirited or cold. There's so many people who don't understand the blessing and goodness that God has created them for. And I think that sadness is important for us, and it's important to recognize this reality, that people do see God this way. And it's reflected in movies, it's reflected in books, it's reflected in all of the world around us, in every conversation we have. And so that sadness reminds us of the role that we have to play, of what God created us to do, of how powerful it is to be an image bearer. Because we've been privileged to, to know God. We're lucky, we're fortunate, we're blessed that God has revealed himself to us. And so let's take up that call to show people, to bear God's image wherever we go. Let's pray.